0: God, very simply, I just pray, Lord, that your word would do the work this morning in our hearts. Lord, we are so thankful that your word does not need to be dressed up and coupled with flash and entertainment. It just needs to be unleashed, just needs to be at the center. So, Lord, I pray with our Bibles open that our hearts would be open as well to hearing from you. Lord, I pray that you would reveal truth about who you are, but or that you'd reveal that in such a way that it actually impacts the way that we live. Lord, we do want to be changed, Lord, after experiencing the power of your word through your spirit. So do that work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, we are finally at 1 Samuel chapter 17, David and Goliath. Yes, of the birth of Jesus, uh, there may not be a story as popular as David and Goliath. It is one of the all-time favorites, contains the drama and the excitement, the anticipation, the suspense, the enjoyment of this good guy beating the bad guy against all odds, all of the the various elements that make a good story good. And it's so masterfully written. It, It captures our imagination, it holds our attention, no matter if you've heard this a thousand times or if this is your first time hearing the story. In addition, David and Goliath, its popularity exceeds beyond the walls of the church. You could probably ask any neighbor or coworker or barista about David and Goliath, and I'm sure that they've heard about that story. And yet, yeah, the, the story, it, it might be popularly known, but is it accurately known? The story is, is known by a lot of people, but is it known with accuracy? New York Times bestseller, author Malcolm Gladwell. He's written a book, David and Goliath. I'm sure some of you have read it. And in it, he spends basically the whole book on this topic of being an underdog and why underdogs win and how you can do the same thing in your life, in your relationships, in your job, or or whatever the case may be. And yet, is that is that the real meaning of David and Goliath? Is, is that really what 1 Samuel chapter 17 is all about? That it's predominantly about you being the underdog and how you can win against all odds. Do you know the real meaning of the story? I know you've heard it before, but do you know what it's actually all about? though there are undertones of this great underdog theme pulling the ultimate upside, upset, triumphing over great odds, though that's true, it's in there, this story, though, is not predominantly about David's heroism. Although I'm gonna pull out some application where it's appropriate, the first thing that we need to understand about this story is that it's actually not about you. This story is not about how you can overcome the giants in your own life. This story doesn't outline a game plan of victory when all odds are stacked against you. This is not a motivational story to never give up on yourself. Just so we're clear before we jump in. Next week, we're gonna look at how David picks up these five stones in verse 40. Now, contrary to what you've heard in the past, wherever you've heard it from, the five stones don't actually mean anything. These five stones are not representing obedience and worship and surrender and caleb music or whatever else you've heard in the past. They're they're just five stones. See, you might be in this story, but you're not David. You're not the hero of the story. God is. This passage is predominantly about God and his power and his sovereignty. And the surprise of grace. Now, in order to get there, we need to spend actually a couple of weeks, kind of setting the story in its own historical context before we jump to application, (laughs) because we've heard this story so many times, we immediately rush to what does this mean for me? That we can bypass understanding the story in its proper context, and yet the story it doesn't come to us like it does in a children's storybook where there's nothing before it and nothing after it. No, the story comes to us in a larger context, a context involving a critical period in Israel's history, something that we've seen each and every week. And so today we're gonna tackle a ton of verses. We're gonna look at the first 39 verses, and we're going to do so through the lens of three main comparisons. Three main comparisons. Here's uh, the first one here. Looking at the first 18 verses, we see a comparison between a godless giant and a young shepherd. Starting in verse one, verse one alerts us to the uh, reality that the Philistines are an immense threat once again. Their army is ready for battle. They're there located at Soko, which was actually within Israel's territory. This is a really important and strategic area because it contained the main passageway between Philistine and Israelite territory. And the Israelites have it. The Israelites are there. Now, King Saul and the men of Israel, where are they? They are encamped in the Valley of Elah, which was about 12 miles west of Bethlehem. Now, according to verse three, it kind of paints this picture where the Philistines and the Israelites are positioned on opposite hills with a valley in between them. And that kind of explains the stalemate that's going on here in these first couple of verses. Neither army wants to give up their positional advantage. They don't want to charge first and and give up the higher ground. Or verse four, we're introduced to an individual who wants to kind of break all that up. We're finally introduced to a man named Goliath. He steps out from the Philistine line to challenge Israel. Now, what's interesting about Goliath and his name, it's only used twice in this entire chapter. It's talked about here in verse four and then verse 23. In comparison, there are 22 references to the Philistine or the Philistines. And the majority of those are directed at Goliath. So the author here is, not even really mentioning him by name, he's mentioning him as the uncircumcised or as the Philistine reminding us that this story is truly a battle between God's people and God's enemy. Now verses four through seven go at great length to describe what Goliath looked like. We're told of his stature and what he's wearing and and where he's from. Look at verse four, describes him as a champion. That's a very interesting word in the Hebrew. That, that word means the man in between. And it was used to talk about these, these champions or these challengers in, in these battles where they would stand in between these two armies and they would basically uh, invite one other fighter from the other army with a showdown, a one-on-one matchup, winner takes all. So Goliath is known as being this champion, the man in between this challenger. And he's a big dude. If you see the description of his height, he was six cubits in a a span or nine feet, nine inches. That's huge, that's so tall. Like reference point, a basketball hoop is 10 feet tall, right? Cory Littlejohn can dunk on that. So that may not be high for him, but for everybody else, like that is super high, 10 feet. That's almost the height of Goliath here. He's a huge guy, and the the fact that he's from Gath is also significant. Gath and Gaza and Ashdod, those were all Philistine cities. And the reason why it's important that he's from Gath is because in the book of Joshua, chapter 11, verse 22, it notes that all of the Anakites who were known for their large stature were all but destroyed in Judah or in Israel, the surrounding territory, except for Gath, Gaza, and Ashdod. So Goliath is a man who comes from the town of the last of the Anakites. Another kind of description of of how big Goliath is 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 really the, the armor description here. There's so many details, again, painting this picture that this guy is huge. The armor that he wore, it was 126 pounds, that that was just on him, that he wore as if it was nothing. He wielded a javelin and a spear. Now, just the tip of the spear, only the tip, was 15 pounds, right? And he's just holding it as if it's just like a doll. He's well protected in the chest, protected in the legs as well, wore bronze armor. His helmet is made of bronze. Again, there's an emphasis on bronze because the Philistines monopolized that material, which gave them great um, power and kind of authority in this, in this time period. And his shield, notice his shield, so big, it's so heavy. He had to have had a, an assistant carry it. It's that large, right? Like all of this, all of these descriptions are designed to convince us that this guy is indestructible. Like he's unbeatable. He's a fortress with no weakness. But notice, Goliath, he's not only described as a giant, he's also described as a snake. It doesn't come out in our uh, translation here, but verse five, it says that he was wearing a coat of mail. Now, it's not like he's got stamps and envelopes on him. Other translations have that he was wearing scale armor. In fact, the, the Hebrew word there simply means Scales. So it says that Goliath has scales. What image is being created for us? It's a snake, a a serpent. That what the author is doing here is he's he's describing Goliath, an enemy of God's people, as this enormous serpent-type figure. Right. We're, We're meant to think about Satan, the serpent from Genesis chapter three. Remember chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, where King Saul defeated uh, the the, uh, King Ammonite. His name was Nahash, whose name literally meant snake or serpents. So once again, we have a serpent in the garden land of Israel, if you will, and they needed a better Adam. They needed a seed of the woman Eve to come and crush the serpent's head. Now, before we move to David as the young shepherd, I want you to notice what Goliath declares in verses 8 through 10. Across the valley, the, the voice of the giant Goliath thundered down toward the Israelites, and he immediately begins to taunt them, right? Basically, he's asking the question, why are you guys here? Why did you come out to battle me? You are no match for me. And then he makes that interesting proposal. He, him being the challenger, him being the, the champion, says, Choose for yourselves one other person, and we'll have this one-on-one matchup, this one-on-one fight, winner takes all. Now that phrase there, choose for yourself, should ring a bell. That phrase there, that's the reason why Saul was king to begin with. It's because Israel chose for themselves a man to become king, so they could be like all the other nations. So they could have a king that could go out before them in battle So Israel has already chosen a man to go out to fight for them. And his name is Saul. Saul is the closest thing that Israel had to a giant. Remember his height, the emphasis on his height? He was a head taller than everybody else in Israel. Now this isn't in the text, but I can almost imagine in between verse nine and 10, this dramatic pause by Goliath as he makes this proposal in verse nine, notices that there's no movement among Israelites' line. No one stepping forward saying, I will fight you, I will take you down. Right, it's just crickets, silence. Not even Saul uh, is coming forth. Saul is nowhere to be seen. And then you get to verse 10 and Goliath says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. I defy. That, that's an interesting, interesting word. In fact, it shows up six different times in this chapter. I don't, I don't like how it's translated there. It's way too soft, it's too weak. It actually means to ridicule, it means to scorn. All right, so, so Goliath isn't lightly taunting the Israelites, he is ridiculing the God of Israel. According to verse 16, he does this twice a day for 40 days. And no one is coming forth. No one from the Israelite camp is saying, we need to do something about this guy. No, verse 11 says they were filled with fear. I mean, 40 days of this, twice a day, taunting you and ridiculing you and making fun of your God. It could be that the 40 days of taunting was analogous to Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And right on cue, we are introduced to David in verse 12. Almost makes us wonder if David is about to bring Israel out of the wilderness and into the promised land, so to speak. But sure doesn't seem like that at first. As the story is being pushed forward, while all of this is happening with Goliath, where is David? David is 12 miles away back in Bethlehem. He's caring for his father's flock. He's going back and forth between Bethlehem and Saul. But notice verse 12 specifically has a couple of descriptions about David that's important. David, it says, was the son of Ephathrites. Now that word there is, is very similar to a word that we saw in chapter one, verse one, where we were introduced immediately to Samuel's father, Elkanah, and the description of Elkanah is that he was a man from Ephraim. Ephraim and this idea of being an Ephrathite, it's basically the same area. It's the region of Bethlehem. And so there's a link that's being created here between David and Samuel, that they're from the same area. They're sons of, of individuals who are from this area of Bethlehem. And that's important because if we recall, how did the book of 1 Samuel open up. It opens up and Israel, God's people, are experiencing a leadership crisis. There is this void in leadership because the last verse in the book of Judges sets everything up. It says, everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes and there was no king in Israel that day. Right? And then in comes Elkanah, chapter 1, verse 1. He has a miraculous son named Samuel, and Samuel is a really, really good leader for Israel up until this point. So now we get to verse 12, and again, we're introduced to a son of an Ephrathite from the area of Bethlehem. Talking about David, and it makes us wonder could David be a good leader like Samuel? Could he be an even better leader than Samuel? Again, these first couple verses about David, it, it doesn't seem like that at first. David is being portrayed here as unimportant. He's young. In fact, verse 14, he's the youngest of his brothers, which that word could actually be translated as the smallest. He's so young though, that he's not even able to enlist in the army. He had to be at least 20 years old according to Numbers chapter one, verse three. So he's not even 20, he's very small. And yet his three oldest brothers are serving in Saul's army. Verse 17, Jesse, David's father, uh, sends David on an errand. He wants David to go check on his brothers at the front lines and and bring with him some provisions, some cheese and some bread, probably the first mention of a hot pocket, right? And he goes and he delivers these things to them. This is how David's introduced for us. Understand the comparison. And really the startling contrast, we have Goliath, this seasoned fighter, this war champion, this absolute brute of a man compared to David, this small, young, insignificant, glorified pizza delivery boy. This is how this, thing, all, this, this whole scene opens up for us. And yet we know from the last chapter that there's actually a lot more happening We know that David is the anointed king of Israel. He's next in line. He's also been filled with the Holy Spirit. We also have this warning from chapter 16, verse 7, in response to to Samuel trying to pick the next king of Israel. Samuel goes for David's oldest brother, Eliab, because of his height, his stature. And so God responds to Samuel, chapter 16, verse 7, and says, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart." right, so we have the scene set for us between David and Goliath, but we've also been given the correct theological lens to understand what's happening here, and what we can expect to happen. See, on the outward appearance, Goliath is super impressive, David, not so much. But that's not what God is looking at. That's, what not, that's not what God holds as valuable. This young and unimpressive, small errand boy, David, has been chosen by God. And that is what is most important. Okay, so that's the first comparison. The second one though, involves the Israelite army and David. Again, we are made aware of in verse 19 that Saul and the army were in the Valley of Elah. Now where's David? Again, verse 20, David is carrying out this assignment, this ordinary assignment from his father, Jesse. Verse 20 notes that David rose early in the morning to carry out this assignment. Verse 20 is is so interesting because it's filled with what seems to be unnecessary details in order to carry forth the narrative. And yet I think all these details are in there to describe for us David's experience of this day from David's point of view. Look at it with me. We're told that David rose and that he rose early in the morning. Both details are unnecessary. We don't really need to know that. Furthermore, we're told that he left the sheep with a keeper. Again, great job, David. But we don't really need to know that within the narrative. So why are these details included? I think these details are included to show us that this day for David was just like any other day. This was an ordinary day for David where he's carrying out this mundane menial, trivial task from his father, but he's doing so obediently. He's doing so faithfully. He's taking this small thing, this small task, and he's obeying his father faithfully. Don't miss that because within God's providence, God uses this ordinary day for David, this menial task, and he uses this to expose David To what Goliath is doing here, and it results in Israel's history being forever changed. Here's a little bit of application for us. Do not overlook the small things in life. Do not underestimate the power of being faithful in the ordinary with the mundane, the small things in life, because God cares about those things. God cares about the, the, the thousands of small things that you and I do every single day, because what God often does is he uses those small things in ways that we cannot imagine according to a sovereign plan. So we get so caught up in, in man, I want to be obedient for God. I want to be faithful for God. And we often think about that in terms of the big things in life, the big moments the significant decisions, the the, the, the hard uh, decisions that are before us. And yet those big moments might be 1% of our lives, right? 99 plus percent of our lives is lived in the ordinary. It's lived in the mundane. It's lived carrying out being obedient with the small things. So don't overlook them. Those small things, according to God's providence, he's using those things to shape us and form us in ways that we can't always see in the moment. Just like David, as he's carrying the hot pockets to go visit his brothers, right? He's, he's stepping into something that God put, put before him that he could not even anticipate. That's exactly what happens. Look at verse 20. Second half of verse 20. David finally gets to the battle line and he hears, he hears shouting, but no fighting. There's war cry, but people are just kind of staring at each other, and this is, this is no good in David's mind. So verse 22, he, he leaves the things that he had in charge of the keeper of the baggage, and then he runs to the ranks. Now again, that's not an unnecessary detail. N- nothing is really unnecessary in the narrative here. The, the word baggage, we've seen before in 1 Samuel. Where have we seen that word? Chapter 10, Verse 22, when Saul was selected as the next king, he's chosen by the lots, right? In God's sovereignty. And yet where, where they're trying to find and look for Saul. Where was he? He was hiding in the baggage. He was afraid. And yet David here, he leaves the things with the baggage and he runs to the front line, right? The next king of Israel, David, the anointed one, filled with the spirit of God, he is ready for action, right, he finally gets to the ranks there. He talks with his brothers in verse 23, and then an epic moment happens, right? We can almost visualize this in our minds. Goliath comes out, and he does this thing where, you know, twice a day for 40 days, he's, you know, ridiculing the God of Israel and the armies of Israel. But look at the last four words in verse 23. It says, and David heard him. David heard. Heard Goliath, meaning he didn't just listen, but he comprehended what Goliath was actually saying and what he was actually doing. This is the moment here where things change because we see here David's response to Goliath in comparison to the Israelite army. Look at the, look at the response of the Israelite army in verse 24. When they notice what it says, when they saw their eyes, they finally see Goliath. First time in the passage that we see that word "saw" as far as seeing Goliath and his and his hugeness. What do they do? They run with fear. Up until this point, they've only heard Goliath, but now they see this giant before them, and they run with fear. I don't think that's by accident. Right, we have this theme of how we are to see, how we are to understand, how we are to interpret life. Chapter 16, verse seven, again, God gives us that warning, the theological lens by which we are to understand this passage. And yet clearly the Israelite army, based on their response, they are seeing the way that man sees by the outward appearance. They're not seeing the way that God sees. Makes us wonder, what would the reaction be of someone who's seen not as man sees, but as God sees? Well, that takes us to verse 26. David speaks for the very first time in 1 Samuel. After verse 25, there's talks of a reward for killing Goliath. Verse 26 involves David's first words. We've been told a lot about David, but here he finally talks now it's in question form but David is actually making a declaration. He basically while Goliath is claiming to defy the armies of Israel, David interprets this as nothing less than Goliath defying the armies of the living God. And David's like something must be done. David's not filled with fear. David is filled with outrage toward this uncircumcised Philistine and he, in his mind, we must remove the mockery as it relates to God's name. Apparently, it's as if David is seeing Goliath in a way that no one else is seeing Goliath. He's seeing him as this uncircumcised, godless, pagan worshiper of dead gods who needed to be dealt with in the honor of the name of the living God. It reminds us of someone else, doesn't it? Jonathan, chapter 14, verse 6. Jonathan said, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Right? We're seeing the effect of David being filled with the Spirit of God. He's seeing the way that God sees. Then we get to verses 28 through 30, and this is an interesting one-on-one interaction between David and his oldest brother, Eliab. If you have a brother, you could probably relate well to what this conversation uh, is all about here. But if you remember Eliab, he's the tall one. Remember, he's the one that Samuel thought might've been uh, the next king of Israel. He's tall, but here he's angry at David. And he essentially asks the question, David, why have you come down? That's an interesting question. We've heard that question before. We've heard that same kind of question from another tall man in this chapter, right? Goliath, verse eight, to the army of Israel, why have you come? See, this seems to be linking Eliab with Goliath, both in height, but also with this adversarial attitude. David has to defend himself with his older brother and kind of walks away. But you could almost say that Eliab was the second giant that David had to withstand in this chapter. After all, Eliab should have known better. Eliab was there witnessing David being anointed, David having the spirit of God rush upon him. He knew David was next. Eliab is nothing less than opposing God and God's man, unknowingly siding with Goliath. But David's not deterred. David is driven for a passion to defend God's name. This takes us to the third, last comparison I wanna point out for us. Verses 31 through 39, we have the weak king and an assured servant. We finally have our first interaction between David and King Saul. Word gets around about this young shepherd boy who's outraged at this godless giant and how he wants to do something about it. It gets all the way to King Saul And David is brought before Saul. He's in the king's presence. And yet the whole conversation is basically dominated by by little young David. David starts out in verse 32 and tries to encourage the king. He's like, don't be discouraged. I'll I'll do something about this, this Philistine. And Saul basically responds. He's like, pipe down, little boy. You have no experience compared to Goliath. You're not going to fight him. But verse 34, David doesn't back down. He assures Saul by basically saying, look here, while I was shepherding for my father's flocks, oftentimes a lion or a bear would come and steal a lamb. I would chase after those animals. I would strike them and I would rescue the lamb. And he claims, he's like, I'm going to do the same thing with Goliath. Why? Because Goliath has defied the armies of the living God. David goes on in verse 37, says that God has delivered me from the paw of the lion and the bear. Therefore, God will deliver me from this Philistine. What faith by David here. Like what courage, what what trust in the Lord. What's so striking about David's words here is that he actually believed all of this. Like God's power was not just theoretical for David. He didn't just kind of hear about it from someone else. This is something that he experienced for himself, and he's trusting in God and his power. After Saul is convinced, he basically gives him permission to go. Verse 38, Saul attempts to clothe David with his own armor, his kind of royal gear, if you will, which I think provides a striking parallel between Saul and the well-armored Goliath. Not only do they have heights in common, but now they have armor and a trust in armor to win the battle. It it almost as if Saul is the third giant that David faces in this chapter that he has to withstand. See, because Saul's offer of the armor, reveals something about his strategy in defeating Israel's enemies. Saul probably thought to himself, well, if Goliath has all this armor, then surely Israel's hero needs armor to win. We got to fight strength with strength. That true power is found in armor and in weapons. See, Saul is is displaying the same worldview and the same perspective as Goliath and these surrounding nations. He's fighting and leading just like the Philistines. David on the other hand, had a very different idea about how to fight the Lord's battle. He declines the armor, and he goes out to fight the Philistine dressed as a shepherd. He goes out there, he just has a stick and a sling. Why? Because David believed something about God that Saul and the rest of the army did not. We see David's theology on display as he goes and he fights Goliath dressed as a shepherd. In fact, you can see his theology, what he believes to be true about God in verses 36 and 37. I think these verses are really, they're so important for understanding all of 1 Samuel chapter 17. That these these two verses, and I'll close with this, they contain three truths about God that I think are so important for us. They impact how we are to live but I really believe without these three truths about God that that David believed, there would be no infamous story of David and Goliath. There there would be no dead giants here without these three truths that David truly believed. They undergird David's bravery and his ability to do what he will do to Goliath at the end of this chapter. Let me me give you these three truths. We'll close with this. Here's number one. that David believed that God is alive. Look at verse 36, says Goliath has defied the armies of the living God. Right, we think, oh yeah, of course God's alive, like duh. But that's in direct contrast to the Philistines' God. Remember Dagon from chapter five, that lifeless dead God who is unable to intervene or do anything for the Philistines? David is saying, no, no, our God's not like that. Our God is living. Our God is working. Our God is able to intervene and go and battle on behalf of his people. This is so important for David as he understands how God works and what God will do. God's not asleep at the wheel. God's not checked out. God's not sleeping here. He's intimately involved in the lives of his people. And one of the things that God does, being living, is, is that God is able to sustain all things. God's able to hold your life together being the living God, which means he's not only holding every molecule together, he's not only holding all the stars in the galaxy together, but he's holding your life together. He's sustaining you. Look, your life is being sustained not because you're so well organized. It's not because of your weekly paycheck. It's not because you can keep all the plates spinning. No, your life is being held together because of the living God, because he is a sustainer of all things and everything that's going on in your life. I don't know if you need to be reminded of that today. I don't know if you're walking through a season right now where just things feel chaotic. Maybe you feel overwhelmed. You feel like the wheels are just coming off left and right. You can't control everything. Look, be reminded, it may feel like everything's chaotic, but there's a God in heaven who is alive, who is on his throne, who is in control of all things, and he is able to sustain all things in the universe, including your life. The question is, will you trust him with that? Even when it doesn't feel like everything's under control, preach this to yourself. God's alive. He's got it. He's holding you together. You can rest in his sovereignty. That's the first truth that David believed. Here's the next truth about God is that God is a deliverer. He says this as much in verse 37, God delivered him from the lion and the bear. He'll do it again against Goliath. That's a huge truth to to actually believe. God's not only alive, but our God is a rescuer. He doesn't watch his people go through struggles and say up in heaven, hey, Good luck with that. I hope you get through that. No, we have a God who, who intervenes and, and steps into the messy and complicated and challenging situations that we experience on a daily basis. And God being a deliverer and God being a rescuer means that he gives us all the grace that we need in order to endure. And of course, the epitome of this, one of the greatest examples of God being a God of, deliver, of deliverance is the fact that God has delivered us from our sin. God has rescued us from our ultimate enemy, Satan and death and, and our own sin and condemnation. What David is saying here is, is unbelievable that, that God rescued him and delivered him from a lion and a bear, Like that's that's amazing. If you were in a one-on-one matchup with a lion or a bear, that would be pretty terrifying. But I've got good news for us. God has delivered you and rescued you from something much worse than the clutches of a lion or bear. God has delivered you from the clutches of eternal death. He's delivered you from eternal separation from him forever and ever. And he rescued you and delivered you because you were unable to rescue yourself. You're unable to save yourself. You're unable to to, to bridge the gap between your sinfulness and a holy God. That's why he delivered you and rescued you through the person and work of Jesus Christ, his own son. He sent Jesus to die on the cross in your place to pay for your sin debts. And three days later, he raised him to new life so that you could be delivered if you trust in Jesus, and his work. Like our God is a God of deliverance. And then thirdly here, the last truth that David was holding on to is that God is faithful. I love what David does here in verse 37. He doesn't just declare that God delivered him from the bear and the lion, but know what David declares is that God will do it again. He takes God's faithfulness. For David, the faithfulness was rescuing him from the lion and the bear, he takes that truth, his faithfulness in the past and brings it and allows it, him to be fueled with obedience to God in the present. That's so powerful for us. He doesn't just say, yeah, this is awesome. God was faithful. I'm gonna affirm that's true. I'm gonna, I'm gonna marvel at that wonderful reality. That's good to do. But David goes a step further and he takes something that is true about who God is, and he allows that to impact David's obedience and his faithfulness in the present. He recognizes God was faithful here, God will be faithful again. And that is the challenge for us. When we think about understanding truth about God, our theology, it's, they're not just things to affirm. It's not just this long list of true or false. God is the creator, true. God is faithful, true. God is omniscient, true. It's not just true and false. And we push that to the side and we live however we wanna live. And it's not even just taking the list and being in all of that. That's good. You're worshiping, great. But it's also taking the truth of who God is and allowing that to determine and shape how you live right now in the presence, that man, if God's faithful then, he will be faithful today and in the future no matter what you face. This is what David believed. This is what David is showing us. I don't know if you need that as an example and that as a reminder right now. If you're walking through something where you're not sure how this is gonna go, you don't know how whatever you're walking through is gonna turn out to be reminded Man, God was faithful in this specific moment in my life. Whatever that is for you, whatever moment that you can think of, of God being faithful in the past, him being gracious to you, him being kind, him being patient, whatever it is, be reminded of that and say, if God did it then, God will do it again now. And apply truth that you know about the Lord to impact how you live today. We got to stop here. I just want to remind us, look, we can already see before we even get to the showdown of David and Goliath, we can already see that this story is not really about you. It's not really about me. It's about the living and faithful God who's a God of deliverance. Let's pray together. Lord, we do give you praise for who you are. Lord, we thank you that you're not static. We thank you that you're not asleep at the wheel, but you are active. You are working. You are intervening in the lives of your people. Lord, we don't always see it. We don't always know what's going on. We're like David in verse 20, just going through the ordinariness of life. And yet, Lord, you're working behind the scenes. You're orchestrating all things according to your sovereign plan, doing things that we can't see in the moment. And So Lord, it, it does, it forces us to trust in you. It forces us to take truth that we know about who you are and to apply it in our lives. So God, would you help us to do that. Lord, we want to be doers of the word and not just hearers. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen.